My name is Mimi Bouchard, and I'm a personal development junkie that is here to help you transform your life so that you can truly tap into your ultimate potential. I'm a meditation teacher and a podcaster, and in this podcast, I am raw, I am real, and I share everything I possibly can to make this journey of self-discovery and transformation easier for you. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have Miss Leah Katz. How are you doing today, Leah? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. So Leah is a doctor, a speaker, an author, and a licensed clinical psychologist based in Portland, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I love it. I'm so excited to chat with you today and talk about just your work in general and, and meditation. I would love to talk about the brain meditation with you. Um, you know, how, how to just be the best ultimate version of you from a psychologist perspective. And, you know, we're both in the work of, of helping people and, and you are, you know, just incredible at what you do. And, and I'd love to pick your brain, um, and, and just hear everything that you have to say about this big topic of personal development. Oh, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. <laughs> I'm so excited too. So before we get started, I'd love to hear a little background. How did you get into doing what you're doing now? And um, how, what what interested you in this field at the beginning? And, and how did you get into it? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think in the back of my mind, I considered psychology for a long time. It was always, it was always kind of there. And then when I got to college, I, I thought about other things and maybe medical school, but I just kept on coming back to uh, wanting to pursue a career in psychology. And I think what helped really shape that and help me make, take the next steps to make that happen for myself was um, I guess it's a combination of personal experiences. So watching people struggle with mental health and feeling really passionate about wanting to be there um, at some point in my life to be able to facilitate help and change. And also I think along the way I had some, I had some really great mentors and teachers who I really looked up to. Um, and I really saw as role models and they were psychologists. And so I think it was kind of like the blending of the two. So like my own personal history with meeting people who I felt were incredible human beings, who I really admired what they were doing professionally. And the two kind of just came together. And I, I pursued my degree right after, um, I got my bachelor's. I went right to my PhD program and, the rest is history. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. I would love to know like the, I guess the consistent problems people come to you with and how you solve them. Like what's your philosophy with, you know, I guess human beings and then the consistent problems that we face and how we can fix that. I know it's a big question, but I would just love to yeah. hear your take on that. Yeah, that is a big question. Part of being a psychologist and like, I've been doing this for a while now is with time, I've developed a specialty in what I treat in my clinical practice, you know? So, and it changes with time too. So at mm -hmm. this phase in my career, I specialize in working with anxiety and depression and teenagers and adults. Um, and so that's just kind of the typical, um, the, the typical client that I work with and the, you know, the sort of treatment modalities that I use are used to target anxiety and depression amongst other things too, but that's kind of the, that's become mm -hmm. my specialty. Um, but beyond that, you know, I mean, so like, that's usually like the clinical presentation, but beyond that, I think that a lot of us carry a certain universe, you know, a universality. Did I say that right? <laughs> but universal, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. But in terms of what we struggle with and what we suffer with and the pain that we carry or not, you know, feeling stuck in life. So I think that like, you know, beyond the clinical specific things that I treat, I see a lot of links 
between, and it's like not even so much age specific. Like I see it in teenagers. I see it in young adults and older Mm -hmm. adults um, across. I'm from New York originally. So I'm in Portland now, but I worked in New York for many years. And so like location doesn't seem to impact that. But um, so that's something that I, that I, that comes up in therapy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. And have you seen anxiety and stress rates skyrocket, you know, since social media has been getting bigger and bigger and all that? Well, so, I mean, I've seen since the pandemic, it's just been like unbelievable, you know, like that anxiety and of course, stress and depression, like, like in my clinical practice, like I've seen them really elevate, um, because we're all dealing with so much stress and we're not built to hold chronic stress. I mean, stress is a part of life, but when we're holding it for like months and months and months, like there's going to be a breakdown somewhere for many Mm -hmm. people. Um, so definitely seen an increase in anxiety and depression over the last year and change. And then like with social media, I mean, definitely I feel like it impacts mental health sometimes positive. So it's interesting because I, I sometimes positively and sometimes negatively, and I think it's depending on how it's getting used and the specifics of that. Um, but that that's definitely, I'm like, I'm so interested in that, you know, since like I, I just got on social media a year ago, right at the beginning of COVID. So for me, it's kind of like this like new world. So I'm experiencing it, experiencing it personally, but I hear about it a lot from my clients, especially my teenage clients, Mm because they're all on social media. Um, and it's just like an interesting thing to observe, like how it can be beneficial and how it can be detrimental for sure. Mm -hmm. I feel like the younger generation, I'm 24, so I'm still definitely young, but I'm not in my teens. And, uh, you know, I really think the, the younger generation uses technology, uses social media in such a different way. And I think that's when it gets really detrimental. And, uh, you know, I, I see these people and, you know, even early twenties and mid twenties, they're just glued to their phone and just numbing themselves out constantly just scrolling and scrolling. And it's not being used in a normal way. It's, it's yeah. an addiction. It's obsessive. It's the first thing you look at when you wake up and the last thing you look at before bed. And it's like, your brain just gets so numb. I don't know if there's any like science behind that, but when I'm on social media too much or on a screen too much, mm-hmm. my brain feels like it's mushy. Like, yeah. is there any science towards that? <laughs> yeah. I'm so interested in the science that's coming out. It's not something that I feel like I'm an expert in. So, but like I, I whenever I see, I get a little digest of science articles every morning. And so whenever I see one on social media, like I gravitate to it because it's something that everybody's on in some capacity. And de- yeah, I mean, definitely there's definitely science that supports that the amount of time that we spend on it. Um, like I said before, how we're using it. So one interesting study that I read a while back was saying that if we're scrolling, that's when it gets detrimental, like just scrolling and scrolling and like not really being productive or not interacting with other people is where it can hit our mental health. But so this was interesting, but if we're using it in a way that's interactive, so we're like commenting and we're, you know, talking to other people, using it as a forum to create a community for ourselves, then it can actually be be beneficial. (laughs) So, so isn't that so interesting? So it's how we use it. Of course, I think length of time. I mean, like that's hands down, right? When we use it, don't use it before night and before you go to bed at night, right? Mm -hmm. Before like first thing when you wake up in the morning, I mean, that all impacts how the function that it serves in your life. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting area because it's so relevant. It's so relevant and it's so magnetic. Like that's what mm-hmm. I that's what I I talk with a lot of parents about this because their teens are glued to their phones, you know. And like we talk about like having the empathy for the teen. Like this is a really magnetic force, you know. And this is especially during the pandemic, pandemic, yeah. this is how they're connecting with their friends. Um 
Yeah. So it's complicated. It's complicated. Would you like, do you tell these parents to limit the time that they, their kids spend on it? Like how, what are some tools both for people that are younger and, you know, a bit older that feel that addiction, that, that just overwhelming magnetic feeling, like you were just saying, like, how do you control that? Yeah. Yeah. And so definitely, we definitely like, that's a big conversation that I have weekly, you know, multiple times a week with parents about setting limits on the phone and how to make that happen. And it's not just a given that we just get our phone and we get to be on our phone whenever we want, because that can get so quickly out of hand and not even, it's not even a personal thing. It's not like, oh, this person has a problem with their phone. It's more like they're, and I don't know if you've seen the um, documentary, uh, what's it called? Like the, the social, social network di- or something no. or some, oh, social, social dilemma yeah, yeah, yeah. or something, but yeah, but they touch on this. Like there, a lot of these platforms are devised to be yeah. addictive and to keep you wanting more. And so it's not a personal thing. It's not like this person can't control themselves. Like, it's really like, we really need to set limits and for parents of kids, help them set the limits or enforce the limit for ourselves, set the limit. It's hard to do. It's so easy for us to say this now. Right. But like, I, we've probably both been in a situation where we're like, oh my gosh, it's way too late. Like, what was I just doing for the last hour and a half, you know? Um, but definitely, yeah, definitely. I actually just, so this is, um, like a funny thing. I, so I noticed like I would keep my phone charging by my bed and I, it would be the last thing I'd see at night. And the first thing I check in the morning, cause like that pull, like what happened overnight while I was sleeping. And so I actually just got myself an alarm clock. (laughs) I had one of those in a long time. It's a nice alarm clock. It like mimics the sunrise. Um, but just so I can get my phone away from my Mm -hmm. bed. Right. Like that's, So smart. So smart. I actually used to have one of those. And then when I moved in with my boyfriend, he was like, yeah, no, we can't wake up with sun. He he, (laughs) like, he sleeps in a a bit longer than I do. And and I want to wake up early with the sun. And it's definitely one of those things we've had to battle. So I now have one of the Alexa things, um, Uh which I also don't, I don't really, I don't know. I don't love it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, my phone's in the other room too. And that's, that's a great tip. Yeah. It's a great tip. I notice a difference and listen, you know, as much as I want to say, I have my strict morning routine and I don't check my phone for an hour after I wake up, I still do it sometimes. And I notice the biggest difference. Like I feel completely different when I'm checking my phone, right. When I wake up and it kind of impacts the rest of my day and I wish it didn't, but it does. And totally. Oh my gosh. I can relate to that personally completely. And I also, you know, it's interesting because I notice an impact on my own creativity, you know, like, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you've noticed this, you know, but like when I like, you know, scrolling and just scrolling, like there's, I think a mind numbing effect, but then also just like, it's, it's like an overwhelming amount of information coming at us. And I feel like I personally do better. if like, I just hold off on that for a few hours, right? Like I'm a writer. I love writing. So like write or just be creative in the ways that I want to be creative. And then like, save some time to like scroll, like check and scroll and see what's happening. Absolutely. Yes. It really dumbs down creativity. I've noticed yeah. the same thing. Yeah. And then it's like, we need to learn how to, you know, use technology in an appropriate way that, that benefits us and keeps us connected. But also there is that tipping point where it just gets way too addictive and, and you get into this hole. And I, for so long avoided, TikTok or reels or anything. Cause I was like, Oh, I, I'm not that generation. I feel like I'm a bit, I'm past that. Um, but then I started a couple weeks ago and it's like, okay, wait, I want to check one more thing. And then it's like an hour later and you're like, what the hell have I done? And it's Hold like on. teaching us to live such fast paced lives too. Cause we want information right away. We want that dopamine hit and that, that response mm-hmm. in our minds so quickly. And, and you're noticing that in conversation, you're like, okay, you know, like, everything needs to be faster. And I think that, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that causes so much anxiety, always rushing and needing more and more and more. Totally. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. I mean, I would agree with that completely. Just know, I mean, I think that there's a certain, and this is, I don't have a study to back this up, but it, it would be interesting to, to look up there. I feel like there has to be a certain rewiring in our brain that happens, right? Like with, um, the constant checking and like what you were saying, like the need for more and more reinforcement, you know, it gets us on this like certain schedule. That's just not healthy for us. And mm-hmm. we talked, I know that you're a big believer and you're passionate about mindfulness and meditation. And so am I. And so it's really kind of like, it's the opposite of that, right? Like it's yeah. taking us t- anywhere, but here with ourselves and our bodies with, you know, like our minds are like elsewhere in other people's lives and what's happening with them. And then like our brain comes online sometimes. And I see this with a lot of teens, but I think it happens to us no matter what age we're at, where mm-hmm. we begin to compare ourselves. A lot of comparisons happen on social media. And I think that like, it also um, reinforces body image concerns, which is something that I work with a lot. Like I was actually just, I don't usually, um, I don't use filters like on my, I don't, I don't do a lot of like video stuff on, on mm-hmm. social media, but I was just playing around with them. Cause they're fun to play around with just for fun. And, um, they really alter your appearance. They really change what you look like, you know, and they enhance certain features. And I mean, I think that that, and I hear this from teenagers too, like that's problematic, right? Because, it, and it's not even like what people look like. So now we have this idea of, oh, I could look like that because my filter makes me look like that, but I don't look like that. So then there's this discontent with what we look like. I mean, there's so much there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've heard stories of, I think it was my friend that told me that she read something about, you know, it was written by a plastic surgeon and this plastic surgeon was saying that, you know, now instead of bringing a picture of a celebrity in, they're bringing a picture of themselves with the filter in. Yep. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell? I know. I, I've heard that too. And I was thinking about that when I was like, just playing around with the filters. Yeah. Like, I can see, but I can, I could understand the psychology behind that. Right. Like, yeah. oh, I could look this way. There's a picture of me looking like this. You know, maybe I should make myself look like this. It's just like, so unhealthy. It's really me. hard. And yeah. I have made a vow to myself to not like, I don't use filters um, like that on, on Instagram and stuff. And maybe I, I definitely used to, I was never huge on it, but I definitely in my past used to like edit myself on mm-hmm. photos. And I've been open about it. Like in the past years ago, I used to Facetune my mm-hmm. photos and I was really self-conscious about my body back then. And it was just this spiral. And it was yeah. like, you get into this comfort zone of not wanting to post a picture unless you've edited yourself. And it's yeah. so detrimental. You don't realize it's not just about posting the photo. It actually influences you and your identity and your totally. self-image in, totally. in such a big way. And, you know, it, it's really sad. So I'm really happy I got out of that. And, you know, being in the work that I'm in, I can't do that. You know, it's it's then I would be such a hypocrite. I'm trying to promote, you know, just being the ultimate you and being authentically you. And, you know, it's just, it's getting bigger and bigger though. Now I recently saw there's like a, an app that, can edit your body in video form. So people wow. are posting videos of their body and it's like face tuning it. It's crazy. Wow. wow. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. It really is. I know. Uh, yep. Yep. I, I really hear you with that. Some of my favorite people to like check out on Instagram are like the body positive, you know, like this is, this is what edited looks like. This is what real looks like, you know, and it sounds like you're doing that too. Like putting, I'm not doing the before and after. Like I'm, I'm the, be- yeah, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm not but just like yeah. not editing. Not yeah. Just, just not editing. So refreshing. Yeah. I feel like we need that kids who are growing up need that. We all, we all need that. Like, let's just, let's just stop this. You know, it's just not good for any of us. Yeah. Yeah. And at, at the end of the day, one of my core beliefs, and I, I know you all agree on this is that 
what we're doing this to be more attractive, right? Is this why we're doing this? Okay. For more attractiveness, um, to feel more attractive and liked, but at the end of the day, I truly, truly believe that to be attractive, it's like so much about your energy and who you are as a person and your confidence, your inner core innate confidence. And that is what's sexy and attractive. And that's, what's going to get you that life that you want and treating yourself with love and, um, you know, if you want to change yourself or you want to get healthier or something, sure, but do it out of love for yourself right? because right. that's where you're going to see lasting change. Totally. Yeah. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I really, I'm hopeful, you know, that more and more people will be putting out that message, you know, that mm-hmm. love yourself, embrace yourself, take care of yourself because there's value in that, right? We feel good when we take care of ourselves but it's not coming from a place of comparison and self-loathing. Mm-hmm. Like what, it's not exactly for other people. Were, yeah. No, no. It's like exactly what you're saying. It's like really rooted in like a deep love for ourselves, you know, yeah. and a caring of like this body, this home that we've been gifted, you know, and love and loving on it in the ways that we can. Yeah. Absolutely. I would love to talk about anxiety with you since you specialize in that, you know, so many of us struggle with it. I struggle with it hundred percent. And, uh, especially if I, if I miss my morning meditation or I fall off of my healthy routine that I know keeps me really strong and, and feeling good, you know, it it happens and it just creeps up on you. And, um, I would love to know, you know, just your general thoughts on what causes anxiety, how to reduce it. I know it's very specific to people's situations, but if you could touch on this, that would be incredible. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I do treat a lot of anxiety and, you know, I feel like, so anxiety is this word that we use and it, so, and it's kind of like this umbrella word and it means a lot of different things depending on the person and their history, right? Their childhood, mm-hmm. their genetics, their current life circumstances. There are so many things that influence the expression and experience of anxiety. And also I always like, I feel like this is always an important thing to put out there the, so the anxiety that I treat in my practice is clinical anxiety. It's when the anxiety gets to be too high and disruptive to life. And anxiety is also like an adaptive force, you know? So when we use this word anxiety, it's like important to differentiate, is this anxiety adaptive? Is it helping me? Is it helpful? Or has it crossed that line? And now I'm feeling like too anxious and it's feeling too heavy and it's affecting my life in some way. I can't sleep or I can't do what I want to do. So there's that important differentiation Um, because anxiety at its core is really our, our brain's way of protecting us, you know? So it's a way of protecting us from danger and threat and getting out of, getting out of a potentially dangerous situation. And so that's when there is a real threat, that's when anxiety works well. Like, that's great, you know, way to go. Like, thank you, anxiety for protecting me. You know, like the analogy that I always just Mm -hmm. like give a lot of times is, you know, if like you're crossing the street and a car's coming and all of a sudden, like your brain saying danger alert, you got to get across the street and your body responds by your heart pounding and you get sweaty and your digestion, your digestion changes, you know, that that's great. That, that just saved our lives, right? We just got ourselves across the street when anxiety gets to be too much. That's when our brain is going into false alarm mode. So we're getting the same alert messages, alert, alert, danger. And either there's no threat, you know, so for like, for example, like, in, it, like with phobias, right? If somebody has, let's say, 
I don't know, like a spider phobia, you know, and they see like a daddy long legs, you know, mm-hmm. no. alert, alert, danger. Oh my gosh, I got to get out of here. That's a false alarm. Cause like that spider is not going to hurt them, you know? So it's either a false alarm or it's like a distorted, it's a distorted thought where like, maybe there's like a slight risk of something. Let's say like, you know, somebody's afraid to drive on the highway, you know, there's a slight, there's a slight chance you can get into a car accident. It's probably not going to happen, but there's a slight chance, but the anxiety will make you think this is definitely going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's where anxiety is like rooted. And there's a lot of, you know, I won't go into it now, but it's from our brain and there's a part of our brain called the amygdala where anxiety, um, comes from. So, yeah, but so that's, that's kind of what anxiety is and the work that I do with people who have more clinical anxiety where it's affecting their life. I mean, it's this really wholesome treatment plan where we talk a lot about different skills to manage the anxiety, but really at its core, is self-awareness. And that's why, so bringing in the meditation, that's why I, I just, I'm, I just love meditation so much because it really helps cultivate that self-awareness and and Mm -hmm. the ability to pause and slow down and know what's happening for us internally so that we can then do something about it. And that's where the therapy is cultivating self-awareness. And then like, that's like all, you know, a lot of therapies. Well, now what are we going to do about it? There's so many different ways we can come at it in like a really gentle, compassionate way. Mm -hmm. Self-awareness. And, and do you think, the self image influences anxiety a lot. Cause I love doing research and, and reading about self image and how it impacts our whole life. And, and I'm curious to know what you think about anxiety and self image. If you think you've always been an anxious person, you know, is, is creating a change in that belief going to help you, or you just need to do, you know, take it from every angle, you know? So you mean like the belief that we have about ourselves? If we is that what you're asking? Like yeah, like like for me personally, I used to always say out loud, "Oh, I'm just anxious." Like I'm I'm always you know I'm I'm anxious. I'm an anxious person, mm-hmm. and trying to reframe that belief has actually really helped me with my anxiety. Yeah. And and that's a different way to think of it, I guess. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I think that part of what you're saying is this idea behind like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And absolutely, by the way, I agree with what you said, how we talk to ourselves and the beliefs that we have about ourselves impact um, directly our behavior, right? Mm -hmm. There's like this chain of events. So our thoughts impact how we feel our emotions and our, the way our body feels. And then that impacts our actions or inaction. So if we constantly tell ourselves, Oh, I'm so anxious. I can't do that. I'm too anxious. Or no, this is like, I I can't, you know, my anxiety is going to get too high. I can't do Mm -hmm. that. Then that absolutely will become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like Mm -hmm. most likely, um, we just take it for granted and then we play it out for ourselves in our head before we even let it have a chance to play out. And it's a foregone conclusion, you know, whereas if we have that self-awareness and it's so cool that you were able to do this for yourself and we catch that thought, and we say, oh, right now my mind is like, is giving me these thoughts that I'm, I'm, I always like to put the thoughts in quotes. Cause it's a way of like, kind of, I'm so anxious, <laughs> you know, it's like you like look at the thought as a discrete entity that's outside of yourself. Then you're able to say, okay, well, is this, is that a helpful thought? Is that even true? Can I do something to disprove that thought? Like, it sounds like you've done that, you know, like, let me take the action to rewrite my story and how I think about myself. Um, yeah, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, totally. And you know, it's interesting too. One trick I learned somewhere sometime that I've actually used often when when I'm about to do something big, whether it is going on stage somewhere or like I know that's I, I haven't done that in ages because it's COVID, but like, you know, doing something that's nerve wracking, like interviewing a really big guest for the podcast, doing my virtual event with 
loads of people, you know, just anything that involves some sort of nerve wracking experience. I told myself this the first time and it really works. So I've continued to do it. And I forget who told me to do this, but um, I think it was a psychologist uh, that was on the podcast maybe once, but when you're really nervous to, to go do something big and you're feeling that anxiety and stress, tell yourself, oh, I'm so excited because mm-hmm. apparently excitement and anxiety and nerves, it kind of does the same thing to your body, right? Your heart beats, yeah. your palms are sweating, you know, you're having that feeling, but yeah. just telling yourself, oh no, I'm not anxious. I'm just really excited. I'm going to go yeah. feel this thing. And you know, that I, I don't know what the science is behind that, but it's really yeah. worked for me many times. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's a great technique. Actually, something so funny. I actually said that to myself this morning. <laughs> so oh I God. like I always have a little bit of a little bit of anxiety before I do a podcast interview. Um, and so I I did the exa- I did that exact thing that you just said. I said, well, what's happening for me right now? So I always like to like make some space for the anxiety. Yeah, I'm anxious and I'm also excited. I love doing these. I love meeting new people and talking about things that I'm passionate about. I'm so excited. (laughs) And so I, and it helps. It really does help because now you're channeling that energy into another way of interpreting it. Another way of interpreting that anxious energy, um, with the caveat, like I always like to kind of just like make some space for the anxiety too, you know, like, yeah, the work that I do also. And this is a tendency, I think with anxiety, like we want to kind of push it down and look the other way because it feels scary. And so part of the work is really learning to embrace it in this really compassionate way. Like, oh, anxiety is here for me now. Great. That's okay. (laughs) Like, let's figure out what we're going to do with this. Yeah. Yeah. Not avoiding it. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. And, um, in general, my, my kind of one last question for you, for people to take home with them. And I love actionable tips. Um, when I record this podcast, do you have any kind of just general, uh, habits that you think people should take on just to feel better and less anxious in their everyday lives? You know, maybe that's reducing technology. Maybe that's doing a certain activity every day or doing something. do you have any tips when it comes to that? Yeah. I mean, definitely a whole bunch. And I think that like that self-awareness piece is so important because it's going to be different for everyone. Like, what am I doing? That's making my anxiety worse, you know? So there's a genetic cognitive component to anxiety, but we're definitely influenced by how we structure our lives, you know? So am I staying up too late? Am I not getting enough sleep? Am I drinking too much caffeine? That's a big one, right? Because caffeine is so big in our culture and there's something so nurturing about drinking a cup of coffee for a lot of people. Like I know I, I like coffee, Um, but it also can make me agitated if I've had too much and it makes me feel more anxious. Mm -hmm. So, uh, watch what we're, you know, watch what we're eating. Are we giving our body nutritious food? Are we really nurturing ourselves in that way? Am I getting outside? You know, like going outside is huge for working with anxiety and bringing it down and even depression too. Like it really helps to get the fresh air exercise, right? Like getting a cardio workout, if that's safe for your body, you know, like however many times a week, but those are all things that, so how we structure our lives, how we choose to set up our days can definitely influence our experience of anxiety. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And it was so amazing having you on the podcast. Where can everyone find you if they want to check out more of your work? Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, my, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram. My handles at Dr. Leia Katz. There's a period after doctor. And I post um, pretty much daily mental health and wellness little tidbits. And um, I have a website, drleahkatz.com. And I'm I'm on Twitter. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Leah. It was so nice to meet you. So nice to meet you too. Thank you.